We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Hey, let me pray for us. And we're going to jump into this beautiful text. Uh, I believe we'll be here shorter than we normally are. Uh, definitely shorter than we were last week. Um, but, but I've lied a lot of times in my life, so we might not. But let's pray and we'll see how this goes. Jesus, thank you. You're very kind to us to bring us to this place, to gather with us here. I pray that you would, oh, that you would free our hearts this morning through your word. That you would free us through the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, the assurance that we have in Jesus Christ, the, the life that we have in Jesus Christ, the righteousness that we have in Jesus Christ. I pray that you would also convict us of the ways and the places that we have more faith in our own efforts than we do in the grace of Christ. And would you burden us for those who are not yet believers? That we may be a people who pray and who share the gospel with them. That they too might find the freeing life that comes through righteousness in Christ. Spirit, preach a better sermon than we have prepared here. We pray these things in your name. Amen. As I said this past week, I was in Atlanta with a group of pastors, and we get together uh, three, four times a year to, to pour into each other's hearts. We dive deep into scripture. We dive deep into each other's own hearts, deep into confession, um, deep into just kind of investing in each other. And um, the, the leader of our cohort, uh, he, he, one of his core values is hospitality. And so um, that plays out in the food that he serves us, which is just absolutely amazing. And um, some of you have already benefited from that with, with my illustration about devils on horseback back at the end of the year, right? So that came from this cohort. So many of you who already made those are already thankful for the cohort right there. Uh, and then um, he, 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 does, um, he, he shows his hospitality also through experiences, giving us just crazy experiences, and so the, one of the experiences that we had this past week was called the Porsche experience, right? The Porsche experience. And so in Atlanta, Georgia, Porsche cars, Porsche Auto has their handling facility, their handling track. And for an amount of money that I don't know he spent, he was able to pay for us all to go here and to drive $140,000 cars really, really fast around a racetrack and different handling situations, and we did things where you would get into it and it would intentionally make you spin out of control. You're going down a track and all of a sudden it just kicks in with water and, and something comes underneath your wheels and just throws you and they intentionally make your car spin out of control to see how fast you can react and gain control of a $140,000 car that you're hoping you don't crash. They intentionally put you in this thing called launch mode that shoots you from zero to 60 in three seconds. And then they won't let you hit the brake as you're coming up to a concrete barrier until they tell you to on a radio. You're driving the car, they're not in there with you, they're on a radio. I'm like, what if the radio dies, right? And you're waiting, your heart's racing for what feels like an eternity, and it's literally about four seconds. But then they say brake, and you hit the brake and you stop faster than you started. It blew my mind, and you never leave your seat, just like you're just sitting there. This is the experience. What amazed me in this experience is we're going around this race track at crazy high speeds as we're doing these intentional spins, as we're zero to 60 and slamming on the brakes. What, what amazed me is, is that 
my, my instructor, the guy who was leading me through this, was in a car in front of me. They used to ride with you, but because of COVID, now they ride in front of you. And so they're in a car in front of you talking to you on a one-way radio. They won't let you talk back because that could distract you, right? And so they talk to you, and, and then we're driving around this track at really high speeds, and he's watching me in his rearview mirror talking to me on his radio while he's flying around this um, Grand Prix-style track. And he would speak up and he would say things that were answering the exact questions that I was thinking at that very moment. He would respond to things or, or give me instruction about things that I didn't know I was doing until he said it. And then I realized that's exactly what I'm doing. Josh, keep your eyes up. Don't look down. Right? Josh, loosen your grip. You're too tight. Josh, and he would give us instructions. And then every now and then he'd pull over and he'd come over to my window and he'd have me roll out my window and he'd say, I'm noticing you're doing this. Here's what I think you could do. I, I bet you were wondering this. Here's the answer to that. His anticipation and his, um, his, his care to detail and his care for my questions and, and what might have been going on and, and just his knowledge of, of really my heart and mind in the midst of this absolutely blew me away. As impressive as the car was, so was this instructor's handling of me driving one of these cars. And as I was experiencing that, I walked away and I thought, Paul has been doing that exact thing throughout Romans 9. He has been so careful to his care of the questions and the concerns that his readers have. He presents truths that he knows could be hard to swallow for some, and yet he's always anticipating the next question, the next objection, the next concern that might be raised by them. And then he responds to it. All the while, like the illustration last week saying, do you trust me? Right? God saying, do you trust me on this? My instructor saying, do you trust me to hit the brake? He literally told me that one time, Josh, trust me. I know this car better than you do. Just listen to me. And over and over again, Paul's been going, hey, do you trust God in this? Let me answer the next question of your heart. And here in this passage, he does this again. He leads into what we see here in 9.30 through 10.40 with much care, anticipation of their next question and speaking to their very fears. I want us to read it again. 9.30 through 10.4. I want us to read the whole thing. And then I want us to give a summary. It's not a difficult passage to understand. It's pretty straightforward. And then I want us to attempt to to see and maybe to experience and know the thoughts and the concerns and, and even perhaps the feelings that the, that the Jewish Christians were having in this moment. Because I believe in doing so, it might help us answer some of our own questions and concerns. 9.30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, 
my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. If you remember, what we have seen is that these Jewish Christians are looking around them and they're realizing that many of the Jews have not trusted in Jesus. And it's raised this concern. If you have to trust in Jesus to be made right with God, then, then what about all of these, what about all of our kinsmen? What about all these other Jews who aren't doing that? Does it mean that God has failed? Has God failed to keep his promise to save his people? And Paul unpacked for us over the last two weeks the, the beautiful picture of God's election that God has chosen out of the same bad lump of clay, some to be made objects of his mercy and some who he has chosen not to make objects of his mercy, but rather even destruction. That God has chosen to save a people specifically for his purpose of showing his glory. And these Jews continue to look around them and another question comes up. They say this, wait, wait, but, but what we see around us is that there are a lot of Jews who aren't trusting Jesus and what you're telling us is that means they have not, nor will they, unless they do trust Jesus, attain the righteousness of God. Paul says there are many Jews who have not received this righteousness of God nor will they unless they trust Jesus, even though they are very zealous for God themselves. Right? They have great zeal for them. It's for God. It's not that they're apathetic to him. It's not that they want nothing to do with him. They have great zeal for God. They want God. They're pursuing God, but not rightly. And therefore, they don't attain righteousness. At the same time, there are many Gentiles who have not ever pursued God, and yet now they have obtained righteousness. And the reasons, Paul says, that the Jews have not attained righteousness, um, the righteousness of God, is that they try to create their own righteousness. They try to make this on their own, to work this up themselves, to, to be good enough themselves through obeying the law instead of having faith in Jesus. Right, Paul says here, Jesus is the stone over which many would stumble and fall. But those who believe in him will not be put to shame. Right, Jesus is the very object, the very person of which many will stumble and fall. They will miss God because of Jesus. But those who put their faith in him, they won't be put to shame in the end. Or they would stumble and fall over Jesus because they have this great zeal for God. They want God. They, they long for God. They're pursuing God. They want to be made right with God. They want the righteousness of God. But they don't want it according to knowledge or pursue it according to knowledge. In other words, they stumble and fall over Jesus because instead of seeing Jesus as the very goal which the law points to, they saw the law as a requirement and a means by which they could double down on their own efforts to earn righteousness. Church, the Jews are some of the most zealous people you could imagine. 
some of the most zealous people the world has ever seen, far more devoted to their pursuit of God than most of us are to our pursuit of God. Over 600 laws of God that they tried to keep. They even had what they called the hedge about the law, which were laws to keep them from breaking the laws. Right? They set up laws around God, set up man-made laws around God's laws so that they would keep them far from the risk of breaking God's laws. Modern-day equivalent might be, Scripture says, um, thou shalt not, like, don't get drunk, right? And so we go, well, then we can't have alcohol at all. Right? Let's avoid that completely because that could lead to that, and we don't want to break that. So let's put a bigger wall up back here so we don't get close to breaking that wall. And they did this for 600 laws, laws upon laws that they were devoted to. They really, truly were disciplined in their pursuit of keeping God's law. But their disciplined church was the very thing that they put their trust in to be found righteous. But this text does not tell us that discipline in obedience is wrong. Quite the contrary, Paul has clearly already unpacked for us that those who are followers of Jesus must put to death their sin, for they are dead to sin. Don't walk in slavery to sin. You're not, it's not your master anymore. Get rid of sin in your life. Walk in obedience. But where they failed is they were putting their trust in their ability to obey rightly, to make them right with God. But at the same time, the Gentiles lived their life with no interest in keeping the law. Before they met Christ, they had no interest in keeping the law. They weren't worried about being zealous for God. They didn't believe in this God. And then they heard the gospel of Jesus and they believed. And Paul goes, they received righteousness. They were made righteous. That's the passage. That is truly the extent of the passage. The Jews were zealous for God and tried really hard to obey the law so they could be righteous before God, but they failed to win the prize of righteousness because they failed to see Jesus as the only one who could obey the law enough to be righteous. And the Gentiles were apathetic to God and carefree in their rebellion, doing very little to pursue God. But when they heard about Jesus, they believed and God made them righteous not because of any works, but because of their faith in Jesus, who was truly and fully righteous himself. Let's see if we can get into what this must have been like for the Jewish Christians. Let's see if we can get into what this must have been like for them to read this, to hear this, because I think in connecting with their thoughts and perhaps even with their feelings around what Paul is saying, we may be able to come to grips with our own questions, with our own concerns, with our own feelings about this text. I'm going to read the passage again, third time. And as I do, I want us to remember that Paul has spent the first several chapters of this letter reminding this church in Rome that God has wrath for the unrighteous. Right? No one is just impartial with God. There's, there's no one that's just kind of coasting by. There's wrath for the unrighteous. And he also has unpacked for them that no one can be righteous enough. 
Therefore, we need an outside righteousness. Jesus came to make us righteous through his perfect life, his substitutionary death and his victorious resurrection. And we must look to Jesus in faith to be made righteous. Paul has already unpacked all of that for them. And like many of us, we hear the truth and, and we feel like we're on board until that truth begins to press against real life experience. Until that truth begins to press against relationship and perhaps expectations. When that truth begins to, to, to have the rubber meet the road, we go, whoa, 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 that's, that's a lot harder than just some truth idea in a vacuum. And I believe that's question Paul's answering here for them. Here's the passage again. The question the Jews are asking, what shall we say then that Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law? Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone as it is written. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Can you possibly feel their frustration? Their confusion? Can you, can you sense maybe unfairness that they feel? Perhaps you even feel it too. Paul, you, you don't get it. My dad, he's the most faithful Jew I know. He has the Torah memorized, Paul. He's kept Sabbath since he was a boy. He's been faithful to offer sacrifices exactly how God told us to. He has prayed and he has cared for the poor. He's been faithful to my mom. One time a guy stole our goat and he didn't kill him. He didn't even bring up charges, but he gave grace. He loves Yahweh. He loves God. He has pursued God his entire life. And you're telling me, Paul, that because he has rejected Jesus as the Messiah, all of his efforts at pursuing God through keeping the law are worthless? Are you telling me that he has not, nor will he reach the finish line and receive the reward of righteousness, though he did all of this, unless he looks to Jesus in faith? Is, is that what you're telling me, Paul? Yeah, that's what I'm telling you. And Paul, let me, let me get this straight. You're telling me my dad won't make it, though he's been so so zealous at chasing after God. But that Gentile over there, that Gentile over there who's never read the Torah, 
that Gentile who has, never, has worked every Sabbath day of their life, that Gentile who has robbed the poor and cheated his wife and abandoned his kids and killed the man who stole his goat, that Gentile who worshiped the gods of Rome, who never prayed to Yahweh a day in his life, that Gentile whose entire life has been lived in outright rebellion towards, the God, towards God and violence towards people, that Gentile, you're telling me, has received righteousness simply because he had faith in Jesus. Yes, that's what I'm saying. How can that be? I don't get this. Paul says, it's because the Jews have pursued righteousness, not by faith, but as if it were based on works. They kept the law the very best that they could as if they could keep it well enough to earn righteousness. But no one can. No one except one. No one except one has ever kept the law perfectly, and the law requires perfect obedience to be made righteous. Do you remember earlier in our Roman study when we saw this is a pass-fail test? A 99% doesn't count. You miss one question, you fail the test. You sin one time, and you are not a recipient of God's righteousness, but of his wrath. Paul goes, it doesn't matter how hard they tried and how well they did, it wasn't enough. It wasn't enough. Further, he says, the law has been pointing to Jesus all along. The law is intended to tell us, you can't be this good. You need a goodness that is beyond you. You can't keep this perfectly. You need a perfection credited to you. You can't earn this, you need grace. It's all been pointing to Jesus, but the Jews won't recognize him. They wouldn't recognize him as the Messiah. They just keep trying to earn their own righteousness through their efforts of obedience, and they've fallen short of the glory of God. Nowhere church in this passage does Paul say that the law is bad. Rather, he simply says the Jews missed what the law was pointing to. He missed what the law was pointing to. He missed the big picture. This is why scripture here calls Jesus the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. The law was pointing to him, but they didn't see, see him, and they stumbled over him and fell to their death. Rather than Trusting in Jesus, they kept trusting their own ability to be good enough. Paul goes, but those who look to Jesus in faith, they will receive eternal life. They will not be put to shame because Jesus is the goal of the law and he is the end of works-based effort for righteousness. Jesus is the goal and he is the end. He's what the whole thing's going towards. He's what we're pursuing. And when we get to him, guess what? The race is over. 
We don't have to keep racing. We don't have to keep running. We don't have to keep trying to earn God's favor. When you attain Jesus, you've already reached the end. Now you get to live in obedience out of God's favor, not for it. This is why Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You're exhausted from your running and your efforts. You're exhausted from sin's burden. You're exhausted from not being able to keep the law well enough, though you try, come to me and rest. I'm the end of this effort. Come to me in faith. So the question for us today, church, is what do we do with this? What what, what do we do with this passage? I have four things for you today. First, we must constantly check our hearts and our efforts. Are we relying on our own efforts to gain acceptance by God? Or are we relying on faith in Christ's life, death, and resurrection? Church, I say constantly, this is a daily taking up your cross and denying yourself thing. There is a point in time where you realize Jesus is my way to righteousness. Jesus is the only way to righteousness. I put my faith in Jesus, yes. Oh, but guys, so often we spend our days living as if that's not true. So constantly, those of us who are followers of Jesus have to bring ourselves back and go, Am I trusting that Jesus is enough? Or is my heart in this crazy race of angst trying to prove my value to God? It's not enough to be zealous about God. Your zeal does not gain you salvation. Salvation is given to you when you place your faith in Jesus. So come to Jesus. Keep your faith in Jesus every day, reminding yourself it is Jesus who saves, not your efforts. Secondly, we pray for unbelievers to have faith in Jesus. Chapter 10, verse 1, Paul says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer for God, to God, for them, is that they may be saved. We looked at this last week. At the beginning of 9, Paul says, my heart is so burdened for those who are not yet believers. It's burdened to the point that I would give my own salvation if it could mean they would know Christ. And in 10.1, he's crying out in prayer for them to be saved. And some of our loved ones, church, some of your family, some of my family, some of our friends and our coworkers, people in our city and people all around our world. They are zealous for God, but they have no faith in Jesus. Muslims are zealous for God, but there's no faith in Jesus. Hindus are zealous, there's no faith in Jesus. Buddhists, but no faith in Jesus. Mormons, but no saving faith in Jesus. Catholics often pursue religious religion with zeal, but no true faith in Jesus. Protestants often pursue religious religion, but no true faith in Jesus. 
Zeal for God alone does not save. Faith in Jesus saves. Well, we pray for them. Church Paul here in 10.1 talks about praying for them. He, he has heart is to pray for them. And he does so knowing that in 11.26, he's going to reveal that God has always planned on saving Israel. God has a plan to save. Paul goes, you've promised you would save them. And out of your promise for saving them, I pray for them to be saved. The promise that God will save them spurs his prayer because he knows God's going to answer. God has promised to save. And we pray earnestly, faithfully for God to save. Third, so first we check our hearts on where our faith is at. Ourselves are on Jesus. Second, we pray for unbelievers to have faith in Jesus. Third, we tell people about Jesus. And again, we're stealing on next week's passage in 1014, Paul unpacks that they cannot, the unbeliever cannot believe unless they hear. They cannot believe in Jesus unless they hear about Jesus. And they cannot hear unless they're told. So God plans to save, and he does so through the proclamation, the proclaiming, the preaching, the telling, the sharing of the gospel by his children whom he has saved, by his church, by you and I. We are the means by which he takes the good news of his son, righteousness by faith in Jesus, to those who do not believe. Guys, in our text here today, it says, I bear them witness, 10-2, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Church, I pray and I am begging with the Lord that I and that you and that we corporately would be a people who find a joyful mission in wiping out ignorance of faith in Jesus. They didn't believe because they were ignorant to the truth. They didn't know the truth. May we see it as a joyful mission of ours to help erase ignorance among those who do not know that righteousness comes through faith in Jesus. Last week, I asked you to pray for unbelievers. And I asked you to share with unbelievers. And I joined you in that of praying, God, would you, be, would, would you save unbelievers? And would you even use me? Make me aware of what's going around so that you could even use me to share the gospel with those who are unbelievers. And it is amazing, church, when you ask the Lord to do that, how he answers. This past week, two complete strangers that I met striking up conversation. One thing led to another. They're both just sharing their entire life story with me. I'm like, my wife's the counselor, not me. And they're unpacking their whole story and it would have been so easy. And this is the third time in two weeks this has happened. It would have been so easy just to rush off. Every time I had places to go, things to do. Would have been easy just to hear it and be like, well, that was strange, thanks. But to slow down and in prayer go, 
God, this person is sharing something with me. Let me hear it. Let me see how I can then give them the hope that they don't have in Jesus. I'm telling you, church, if you will ask God to save and you will ask him to help you be a part of that, he will give opportunities. Watch for them. Pray for them. And then in faithfulness, proclaim Jesus. Fourth, for those of you who are unbelievers, who have no faith in Jesus, the invitation to you today is to believe upon Jesus. If you come to him, you will not be turned away. If you come to him in faith, you will not be turned away. Unbeliever, hear this. Christian, this might do your heart well as well. It doesn't matter what yesterday was. It doesn't matter what sin your life was riddled with yesterday. It doesn't matter how much sin you carry into this moment, how angry you've been at God, how apathetic you've been towards him, how vile. It doesn't matter if you've cursed his face every day of your life. It doesn't matter how bad you've treated others. If you come to Jesus in faith today, you will be made righteous. None of you carry too much sin for him to forgive. It's Paul's very point here. Righteousness is not by how well you've done, but by your faith in Jesus. So unbeliever, come to Jesus today and find life. Be made righteous. Children, maybe I'll sum it up for you this way. On your way home, if your parents ask you, what was the sermon about? Got two points for you, kids. You ready? Adults, you can listen. It's okay. Number one, you can never be good enough to make God pleased in you. You can never be good enough to make God pleased in you. That would be a really bad point if it wasn't for point number two. Point number two is this. All you have to do is trust in Jesus and God will be pleased in you no matter what. Because his pleasure is in Christ. And that pleasure is then shared with you. You can never be good enough to please God in your own efforts. But if you trust Jesus, he will forever be pleased in you, no matter what. Kids, I hope you believe that. Adults, I hope you believe that. Unbelievers, please believe that. And find life. Jesus, I thank you. Thank you for your grace that as we've just seen, we could never earn. But you didn't leave us hopeless. Rather, you did the very thing it took to save us in the midst of our hopelessness. Jesus, you came. You lived perfectly obedient to God the Father. You died in our place and you rose again, giving us life.
making us righteous. So thank you for that. I pray that this would encourage the hearts of your children today. And that in this text, your kindness would lead those who are unbelievers to repentance and to faith. And Father, as we go about this week, may our prayers be for unbelievers to believe. May our words be words of gospel grace to those who we are around. And Father, may we continue to strive to obey but may we do it out of a beautiful place of rest that you have already saved. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Church, today we get to come take communion as we do every week. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you've placed your faith in Jesus as your only hope of righteousness, then our invitation to you is to come, to take the bread, to take the juice, to remember that it is his broken body and his shed blood which purchased the righteousness you could not purchase. If you're not a follower of Jesus, if you've never placed your faith in him, then our invitation to you today is to stay in your seat. There's no judgment from us to you on that. We actually respect the honesty there. Stay in your seat, and instead of coming and taking bread and juice, take Jesus. Look to Jesus and have faith in Jesus today. And receive God's righteousness. If you want to talk more about that, we'd love to talk with you after the service. Come find one of us. You could ask anyone that comes by and takes from this table. Church, I pray that you are blessed today as you take this and as you remember his great act of grace towards you. Church, come and take. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com dot com.